Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter Cinematic Universe. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. on in this ship what exactly is the harry potter cinematic universe yeah so this is an interesting one i think so we're now five episodes deep into this podcast right and i think it's been really nice that every episode we've had we've sort of discovered a different story to tell um and all ships are different all ships are different and as we were getting into this episode right i think our initial thought uh thinking about harry potter that was that we were going to cover drary draco yes. and harry Dreary, which even though you and I, I don't want to spoil, but we were Harry Potter readers as children. I don't think either of us were really aware of Dreary as a ship until we were adults. Yes, I agree with that. That wasn't um, something I heard about. <laughs> <laughs> so we started putting together the ally and we're like, what's what's the angle with Dreary? What are we going to do with that? We're researching yeah. shipping in Harry Potter. We come across something else we think is interesting and we go... Maybe we'll be covering Drapple. Drapple, you say? Yes, for those not in the know, which was us before we discovered this. Drapple is a ship between Draco and an apple. <laughs> sometimes a very specific apple, sometimes seemingly just the concept of apples. We became aware of this because of Tom Felton, who is a Drapple fan. Right. And brings it up to interviewers when they ask him about his favorite ships. So that was our second thought, and we're actually not going to get into Drabble, but if you're listening to this, you should get into Drabble. And we are definitely going to be posting some information about Drabble for you to find, because people should be reading on their own time about this. It's that great. Yes. And again, as we're outlining, we're on also a general Harry Potter uh, deep dive, and uh, we really busted this thing wide open as we were on that walk. It came to us, and it came to us in a big way. So if you're going to be talking about queer baiting when it comes to the Harry Potter cinematic universe, question mark, the thing to talk about is Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. I know you're saying Dumbledore and who? <laughs> Which is what we were saying yes. when we first discovered this. But it actually is a fascinating test case in the world of queer baiting. So though um, Grindelwald, I believe is mentioned in the Harry Potter books somewhere in book seven or something like that. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's define what we're going to be counting as canon for this conversation. The sources that we're looking at are not the books though we have read them. Mm-hmm. They're not the original Harry Potter movies that we have seen it's them. Not important to this conversation. We will they be are- looking at Fantastic Beasts 2, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which is the the only uh, text, I guess, to our knowledge, where Grindelwald and Dumbledore, our characters in question, both appear. Yes. Not even Fantastic Beasts 1, you say? No. Fantastic Beasts 2, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So we both managed to watch this 
one film. It was a big commitment, but we made it through. And that is what we are prepared to discuss today. And if you don't know anything about Thelma Lauren Grindelwald, which you're forgiven if you don't, because why would you? Uh, this is going to be an eye-opening conversation. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting one. Um, but as always, before we dive in, I think we've maybe given this away a little bit, but how do you feel about Harry Potter generally, Maddie? I and you both are were readers of Harry Potter as kids. I think that we are about the exact right generation to be sort of peak Harry Potter fans because we are uh, Daniel Radcliffe's age. So when the first movie came out, we were 11. We all could have gotten our, you know, letters to go to Hogwarts, but it didn't happen for anyone. So uh, <laughs> it was a big part of my childhood, I would say, but uh, I would not say that I continue to be a huge Harry Potter fan. I don't really engage with the fandom. I don't generally really watch these things. I wouldn't have watched Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald were it not for this conversation. Um, and then on top of that, there is the compounding issue of how problematic J.K. Rowling has become <laughs> in recent years. So I think I have uh, distanced myself somewhat from really paying attention to what goes on with Harry Potter fandom in the intervening time. How would you describe yourself as a, as a fan of Harry Potter or not? Yeah, so as you said, we're kind of almost like the exact right age to have read the books. And I, I definitely, I read all the first seven books. I don't know why I said the first. I read all seven books. <laughs> um, but it, it was never a series that like stuck to my ribs or really affected me emotionally. Um, and as like a fantasy nerd who has like very strong opinions about magic systems i find mm -hmm. harry potter to be frustrating um and i guess the other thing right is objectively her world building is effective because many many people have been affected by it yeah but I, I also have a lot of like problems like how does their economy work why can you make wine but not food like how does magic none of it makes any sense so and why does capitalism still exist in a world with magic? That's yeah. just cruelty. Anyway, um, leaving all of that aside. Yeah. So I, I checked out pretty much after the seventh book, after the seventh movie. I had not seen Fantastic Beasts 1 prior just recording this. And after watching Fantastic Beasts 2, I also realized I don't remember the seventh book, like, at all. I remember, like, four things from the movie, one of which is that part where Voldemort hugs Draco, which is my favorite arguably my favorite part of any Harry Potter movie. That's a great moment in cinema history. Um, but not like uh, helpful to understanding what happened in the, in the movie. Um, cool. So it was interesting watching Fantastic Beasts 2 in light of having like really no background on Grindelwald as a viewer. Until we got into this deep dive of what their deal is, I couldn't have told you anything about Grindelwald. I don't think I would have remembered his name from the books, though they tell me that it's in there. Right. So that leads us to the question of why are we talking about these characters and why are they a ship and why why are people talking about them? And so, the answer to that, I can already feel my frustration like building. Why do people ship them, Maddie? Well, they didn't. Until out of nowhere, J.K. Rowling announced, post having written all of the books and therefore not having written this into the books, 
that Dumbledore was gay and had previously had a, an intense and and sexual. She explicitly says it was a sexual relationship with Grindelwald. So that's why people might ship them because J.K. Rowling told us they were in a sh- an intense and sexual relationship. Yeah. So she really brought this on herself because would you say, I, I know everybody remembers when she announced the Dumbledore's gay thing and, and that was the beginning of, you know, things getting real wild on J.K. Rowling's end. <laughs> but, but at the time it was sort of like, a, oh, cool, I guess. But really this is like just an obvious attempt to get people to keep talking about you because if you really wanted Dumbledore to be gay, he would have been gay in the books. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the Grindelwald piece of it becomes interesting because of who Grindelwald is. And we did not know who Grindelwald was originally, but he is not a good dude. No. The first coming of Voldemort. Yeah, he's the, the, the pre-Voldemort fascist who apparently wants to subjugate all muggles and also stop having them live in separate worlds he wants wizards to not have to keep their existence a secret and he also wants muggles to be sort of wizard servants seemingly yes uh unclear but but what is clear is that back in the day it is jk rowling's idea that dumbledore and grindelwald met as young men grindelwald had all of these revolutionary ideas and he was just such a captivating character that dumbledore was drawn to him and basically dumbledore was like a wannabe fascist back in the day these are the things she doesn't tell you in the book <laughs> and again they had an intense and sexual yep. relationship which led to a whole host of events and then they had a falling out and and now they're not together so Okay, assuming assuming you're me and you don't remember book seven of Harry Potter outside of Voldemort hunking Draco and you didn't see the first Fantastic Beasts, are there clues in Fantastic Beasts 2 that might cue you into the idea that, uh, again, these two characters had an intense and sexual relationship? She says they're canonically together. This movie is about the two of them as younger men, though post-relationship, and Dumbledore is trying to get Grindelwald to give up his evil mission or whatever. So if you're thinking of that as a movie about these two men, knowing that they were formerly lovers (laughs) and now on opposite sides of this issue, it feels like that is an important piece of what's going on in the film, right? It feels like that emotional through line tells you everything you need to know about what's going on with the two of them. Do we find evidence of their relationship in the film? So here's what we got. The ministry comes to talk to Dumbledore about taking care of Grindelwald. And uh, the minister of magic question mark says to him, or maybe just an or, I don't know, says, uh, we know you two were like brothers. And Dumbledore says, we were closer than brothers. Another part in the film where Grindelwald is talking, was he talking to Queenie? Yeah. There are these American characters from the first one that are in this one too. And one of them is a, um, is a wizard. And one of them is a muggle. And obviously they're not allowed to be together. And so um, Grindelwald, in an effort to win Queenie, the woman who is the wizard, onto his side, is, is talking to her and says, 
wizard should be able to live and love openly as like a you should get to be with your muggle boyfriend but also as a i should get to be with my male boyfriend (laughs) because immediately from that line they cut to dumbledore who is doing what kelsey uh, he's looking into the mirror of Erised, and if you don't remember the mirror of Erised from the Harry Potter books, it shows the thing that you desire most. And Yes, and what is it, this thing that Dumbledore desires most? So he sees Grindelwald in the mirror, and then he sees a flashback to when they were young men, and again, presumably in their intense and sexual, sexual relationship. relationship. Uh, as they form a blood pact. So they put their hands together and their intimately. Blood, yes, their blood intermingles and it turns into a necklace. Uh, yeah, it's pretty yeah. weird. And then the, the uh, memory, the image of the memory fades away. And once again, he sees adult, current Grindelwald. Current fascist Grindelwald. <laughs> would seem to indicate that it's not just that he desires going back to when he was more innocent or a time that he remembers fondly or, you know. Or the, the intimacy that he once shared with someone. He right. most desires current Grindelwald. Grindelwald in all his forms. Yes. So that's in the movie. And then the <laughs> final uh, interesting uh, clue or, or or indication of the, the relationship is, and I guess this is also partially a question of we don't fully understand the rules of what you do with your blood packed jewelry. Right. <laughs> Grindelwald carries the vial of their blood around. So presumably he could have like Voldemort did with his Horcruxes hidden it somewhere that no one would ever be able to find it for safekeeping. But instead, he wears it around his neck close to his heart. And it's this vial where it's like the drop, each of their drops of blood are sort of like dancing around each other. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it reminded me, as I was telling Kelsey earlier, very much of like Billy Bob Thornton and Angelina Jolie back in the day when they traded vials of their blood with each other <laughs> to signify how important they were in their relationship. That's what's going on. That level of creepy. So that's what we have in the movie. Now, what you'll notice we didn't say was any explicit recognition of the fact that the two of them were literally in a relationship back in the day. Right. None of the uh, sexual component of their relationship uh, comes through visually. None of the relationship component of their relationship comes through. They, they, they leave you to wonder what the deal is. I mean, you, I guess you do have to wonder why they have this blood pact and all of that. But they very much do not make canon or explicit the fact that the, these guys were in a romantic relationship with each other. Anyone watching this who hadn't heard J.K. Rowling say this would not know <laughs> that they were together. Right. And that's important, right? For our queer baiting discussion. Yes. So that's what's in the movie. We, of course, like we said, know that in 2007, uh, J.K. Rowling said that Dumbledore was gay, but there's a lot more to that 
quote than I originally realized, which we'll get into. But uh, as we talk about what the creators say and do, uh, we're gonna we're gonna ramp up to to J.K. herself and start. Yeah, let's, let's finish with J.K. Let's start with Jude Law, the actor who portrays young Dumbledore. He has obviously far less creative control than J.K. Rowling, and it's worth saying she wrote the script. Yes, this is not someone adapting her work and deciding to just like ignore some random thing she said one time. It's her who wrote this movie. And so they asked Jude Law about specifically this dynamic of Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And he said this. JK or Joe, he calls her Joe. They're on they're friendly. Yes. Joe Rowling revealed some years back that Dumbledore was gay. That was a question I actually asked Joe, and she said, Yes, he's gay. But as with humans, your sexuality doesn't necessarily define you. He's multifaceted. I suppose the question is, how is Dumbledore's sexuality depicted in this film? This isn't his quote, it's the article is in. According to law, Dumbledore's sexuality isn't. Quoting again, what you got to remember is this is only the second Fantastic Beast film in a series. And what's brilliant about Joe's writing is how she reveals her characters, heals them to the heart over time. You're just getting to know Albus in this film, and there's obviously a lot more to come. Despite JK having said that Dumbledore was gay, that's obviously never happened in the in the canon. So Jude Law says, we learn a little bit about Dumbledore's past in the beginning of the film, and characters and their relationships will unfold naturally, which I'm excited to reveal. But we're not going to reveal everything all at once. Sort of a tease. Yes. So these quotes are pointing to the potential that in the future, this could be made more explicit. And we just have to be patient and wait. But again, you're not getting any dispute that in everyone who's making this art's mind, Dumbledore and Grindelwald were in love and had an intensely sexual relationship. (laughs) Yes. It just doesn't ever appear on screen for what reason? Unclear. Yes. So um, probably only interesting, right? Like maybe in contrast to uh, uh, the Star Wars example, Jude Law, mm-hmm. not not Oscar Isaac. In no, case. he's sort of doing the opposite. Yes. Although he's not, he's not doing, you know, the Chris Evans, Sebastian Stan thing of like, they're like brothers, you know? Like he very explicitly is like yes they were together jk rowling says they were together i know they were together everybody knows it but do we really need to show that on screen is seemingly the vibe we'll we'll show it soon we'll show it at some point yeah maybe so then um moving along to our our other creators before we get to jk i think there's some interesting quotes from david yates the director of the film about this so what did he have to say so uh, director David Yates, and it's worth maybe also noting that David Yates has worked with J.K. Rowling on a number of the Harry Potter movies. He directed a number of the original series movies as well as I think the first Fantastic Beast. So they're longtime collaborators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says that Dumbledore is, quote, not explicitly gay in the film, despite the fact that J.K. Rowling has said the wise wizard was gay. Uh, and then, but I think all the fans are aware of that, Yates continued. He had, a, again, a very intense relationship with Grindelwald when they were young men. They fell in love with each other's ideas and ideology and each other. <laughs> but he also goes on to say, I'm less interested in the sexual side, though I believe there is a sexual dimension in this relationship. 
than I am in the sense of the emotions they felt for each other, which ultimately is the most fascinating thing about all human relationships. This is a story about two men who loved each other and ultimately have to fight each other. It's a story for the 21st century. Oh, there's a lot to discuss here. (laughs) First of all, I mean, just because it's the last thing you said, that sticks in my mind. It's a story for the 21st century seems to imply some sort of like, isn't it progressive that we didn't focus on the fact that they were gay, which is... I I mean, a galaxy brain take, if I'm being honest. I don't understand how you get to, isn't it so cool and modern of us to not show gay characters being gay? Uh, But before that, I'm getting, you know, vibes of of J.J. Abrams in this quote about how it's this. Yes, they were sexually intimate, but I'm not interested in that. Why would we focus on the, you know prurient sexual side when we could focus on the emotion of their relationship which yeah yeah and i think this is going to come up again in one of jk rowling's quotes but unlike the example in good omens right they're also not saying like they could be asexual or aromantic like they're definitely in love but it it wasn't sexual they are they're again telling us it's sexual (laughs) I've never had a creator be like, oh, they were fucking, (laughs) but you're not going to see any evidence of it on screen. That's the disconnect. And that's why I I think it's worth saying that it's not the same as the Neil Gaiman example, right? Where he, Oh yeah. It's a very different case. Right. Um, Yeah. Cause yes, you're right. There is, could be comparison to be drawn because Neil Gaiman does say they're in love. Like he is pretty explicit about the fact that, That is a love story. But yeah, all of the other things he says are very much different from what's going on with these two. And also, right, these two are cisgender human males. Right. You definitely can't fall back on the, uh, they don't even have an idea about what gender is. They do. Yeah. Now, I don't want to linger on these Yates quotes too long because we're about to get into this J.K. Rowling quote and I think we're gonna have to talk about it. Yeah I I think the way to to dive into this is to just lay it all out there let's read the whole quote and then we can pick it apart in in the way that we both want to. Right so this comes from uh just to be clear the way that J.K. Rowling announced Dumbledore was gay is she was at a QA in 2007. And so this is a series of quotes also from that QA as she's working through like what that means uh, for right. the character. So here's what she had to say. Quote I had always seen Dumbledore as gay, but in a sense, that's not a big deal. The book wasn't about Dumbledore being gay. It was just that from the outset, obviously I knew he had this big hidden secret and that he flirted with the idea of exactly what Voldemort goes on to do. He flirted with the idea of racial domination, that he was going to subjugate the muggles. So that was Dumbledore's big secret. Why did he flirt with that? She asked. He's an innately good man. What would make him do that? I didn't even think it through that way. It just seemed to come to me. I thought, I know why he did it. He fell in love. 
And whether they physically consummated this infatuation or not is not the issue. The issue is love. It's not about sex. So that's what I knew about Dumbledore. And it's relevant only in so much as he fell in love and was made an utter fool of by love. He lost his moral compass completely when he fell in love, and I think subsequently became very mistrusting of his own judgment in these matters, so became quite asexual. He led a celibate and bookish life. Uh, and then p people sort of asked her questions about um, whether or not it's appropriate, I guess, to have a gay character in your children's book, which mm -hmm. of a whole other thing. <laughs> she says, so what? It's a very interesting question because I think homophobia is a fear of people loving more than it is of the sexual act. There seems to be an innate distaste for the love involved, which I find absolutely extraordinary. Uh, yeah, so oh. there's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot to unpack there. There's a lot there. Um, Where to begin? <laughs> uh, <laughs> first of all, I quibble with the idea that she always saw Dumbledore as gay because that just feels patently untrue. If you always saw Dumbledore as gay, you would have written him as gay, yeah. right? You would have put something in the books. Even if it's not him being like, I'm gay, there would, he would have been queer coded or something, right? Like, there was no person asking the question, is Dumbledore gay, before she announced that he was gay. Yes. The next problem, the next problem is, like, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. So I think you're trying to get at her sort of conflation of the yes. fact that he had this bad secret, and then the jumping to the bad secret must be that he is gay and in love with a man. And somehow you get these things all tied up together of like, why would Dumbledore do an evil thing? Because of queer romance. Right. <laughs> you know, that sort of all gets tied together in this way that echoes every queer coded villain you've ever seen in your life. Yes. It's horrible gay stereotypes, which is made worse by her later assertion that like, he had to give up gay sex to be a good person, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, and not not just give up gay sex and, and 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 become celibate. She actually says he becomes quite asexual. There's a woman who doesn't understand what asexuality is. <laughs> right, which is, again, this horrible uh, assumption that if you're asexual, something must have happened to you. Yes. Oh, no. Something horrible happened. You had a trauma and you became quite asexual. <laughs> Right. Yes. But the, yeah. So this reads as in order to be a good person, mm -hmm. he had to not, not be, be gay. Actively gay. Yeah. And maybe he could be gay, but just like never act on it. And that was okay. Right. You know, it's like, I love the sin or hate the sin sort of situation. Yeah. Which is horrible. <laughs> also in the, in the idea of like, her making these assertions that I don't know if they track is this idea that homophobia is a fear of people loving more than it is of the sexual act. And I don't know if that's true. Just nonsense, right? Like those words don't even mean anything. Where is she getting this idea that people are afraid of love and not the sexual act? There seem to be plenty of homophobic people that are, are pretty focused on the sexual act, if you ask occupied me. with the sexual act. Yeah. Um, uh, 
getting back to the the hate, the sin, not the sinner, right? It's oh, you right. can be gay as long as you, you know, don't, don't do the sexual act, right? right? The sexual act is the sin part. It's not the love. Yeah. Okay, well that's bad all around. <laughs> But then it really is like we thought that J.J. Abrams quote was going to be one of the more insane. But we read this these series of quotes so many times just being like, oh, no. What about this part? What about this part? Top to bottom <laughs> bad. The and then she could think that Dumbledore would be a fascist is he fell in gay love and not yes. like just kind of a dude who sucks. Yeah, I mean, also, the are we sure that he's an inherently good person if he also wants to be a fascist? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Even outside of the of knowing that he dabbled with fascism, by the time you get to the end of the Harry Potter series, you're like, he's a manipulative asshole. I don't he's like so him. so manipulative. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'd soured a little bit on Dumbledore by the end of the series. Of the series, yeah. So I don't, I, you know what? I don't need an explanation of why Dumbledore dabbled in fascism other than he found it appealing. Right. And honestly, I'm more interested in a story about this guy that everyone thinks is such a good guy when really he's not, right? He really (laughs) was a wannabe fascist for a while and then fell out of love or whatever with the guy who was teaching him fascist ideas and then stopped being a fascist for a little bit. But then, like, maybe could have been drawn back to it at any time. I don't have any faith that he was an inherently good person. And it's the same. Like, his manipulativeness is the same impulse of, like, I know best. So I have to move yes. the strings because you all are idiots and you're not going to get it done. It's, like, the same yeah. grandiosity. So it tracks for Exactly. Me. Well, and the Voldemort thing is, like, kill all muggles, right? And, and half-blood wizards and blah, blah, blah. The Grindelwald thing seems to be... Not that, not like murder all the muggles, but definitely subjugate them. And in that lies the same strain of like, wizards are inherently superior and should be in charge. And I think that that tracks with Dumbledore. He definitely thinks that he is superior and should be able to make decisions for everyone around him all the time without bringing them in on why he's making the decisions, right? Isn't that like the main quality of everything Dumbledore does for the entire book series? Yes. So not not to make this podcast our critique of the character of Dumbledore, but no, let's I go just, back to making this podcast our critique of the person of J.K. Rowling. Very good. Yeah. So yeah, it's like it, she decides he's gay, a hundred percent, either in the moment or you know sometime around there. No one according to her it. years before, and then she just never mentioned it or wrote it. No I think she probably thought of this on stage that night, but yeah. that's just me. And then proceeds to use it to reinforce horrible gay stereotypes. Yep. And, and then double down on it because as we read in that quote, she's sort of like, ah, it doesn't matter if it's sexual or not. Later, she is the one who says the relationship was intense and the relationship was sexual. <laughs> she right. has made up her mind later on. And then just to get into sort of the bait part of the queer bait, she starts talking about the fact that like just because they haven't been explicitly gay in the movies you've seen so far doesn't mean they won't be later right she says 
I can't tell you everything I would like to say because this is obviously a five-part story, so there's a lot to unpack in that relationship. You'll see Dumbledore as a younger man and quite a troubled man. He wasn't always the sage. We'll see him at that formative period of his life. As far as his sexuality is concerned, watch this space. So kind of very similar to the the Jude Law of like, oh, queer fans, don't worry. There will definitely be more explicit queerness in the next one. So make sure <laughs> as long as you buy that ticket. movie ticket. <laughs> so I don't know. I think we ended up getting rid of this quote, but she also had a quote kind of indicating the same thing as like David Yates was saying of like, I'm not interested in the sexual element. I'm interested in the emotions. And it's like, no one's asking you to show them having sex in a children's movie <laughs> or whatever this movie counts as. That's clearly not what people are asking for. But for you to private, well, not privately, just publicly, but never on screen, be saying over and over, they're together, it's sexual, it's romantic, it's a queer relationship. And then to show it not at all on screen is just fucked up right. <laughs> like, I don't really know how to express it what is this instinct and I aside think- from if I say he's gay everyone will pay attention to me <laughs> but if I make him gay in the movie maybe not as many people will watch right and I think the other thing that comes out in these quotes that I, I want to make sure we touch on is um I think that came up in the in the quote we didn't include but also Jula's quote about like sexuality doesn't define you he's multifaceted and it's like they're they're saying two things at the same time they're saying this intense sexual relationship was the most pivotal thing that happened in Dumbledore's life. It yes. turned it forced him to be celibate for the rest of his life. It was hugely traumatic for him, but you know, also not important at all cuz he's a multifaceted Yeah, not important. A lot going on. So like don't it, it's not important. But also yeah. literally the but most But also it's important so thing. important. It changed everything about his life, but also like not important enough for us to put in the movie. Yeah. Especially, and it's not just that it was hugely important to him as a person. If you're thinking about the context of this film and how these two characters are meeting and when and and what it is that's drawing them together in the actual movie plot, I can think of no more important thing to know about these two characters than the fact that they used to be in a relationship, right? When you have the villain of the movies doing his thing and then the not protagonist, but he is a good guy who happens to exist on the fringes of the movie, basically, is like trying to hunt him down. They are at odds with each other. What could be more important for me, the viewer, to know about them than that they used to be in love? I mean, it's like the most important thing about their dynamic. What a weird thing to not mention. Yeah. So, you know, I guess we'll find out in Fantastic Beasts 3 if they execute, if it's if it's played as a big reveal of, <gasps> we were in love. Yeah. I will say, giving them way more credit than they are due, the way the movie ends, in my mind, if you were telling a narratively satisfying story, does seem to imply that, like, questions are going to be asked about this blood oath and why Dumbledore made it and you'd think Newt Scamander is gonna sort of be like why did I have to rescue this blood oath vial from the two of you why do why were you so close to a guy who is now basically Hitler (laughs) at some point in your life so if you didn't see the movie uh yeah Grindelwald wears the blood pack vial on his person 
Newt Scamander, who is our main character, gets it back from him and he goes to talk to Dumbledore. And at the very Newt, end. Yeah, I guess Newt realizes it's a blood pack and he's like, do you think you can destroy it? And Dumbledore is like, we'll find out. Right. So that um, presumably will be like the a big part of the plot of the next movie. Right. But the follow up question must be like, so why does this blood pact exist? Yeah. Isn't this guy evil? And aren't you supposed to be an inherently good person? <laughs> the best guy? Just the greatest, best guy, Dumbledore? Um so yeah, that's what the creators say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, JK. Never um, met a terrible thing she didn't say. Yeah. Um, but I think it is worth looking at. So we know this is a canonically gay couple. Well, okay, yes and no, because as we've had many a discussion, as we just had a discussion about what makes something canon and what counts as canon and jk yes seemingly is the ultimate arbiter of canon in this world but right. does something that she says on a stage one time count as canon or does it have to be in the book that's sure. sort of you know but at some level canonically yes. gay so mm-hmm. but is this showing up in the fan production our fan have fans latched onto this as a queer ship and do we see that in the in the in the numbers yeah, I would say not a ton. <laughs> There's really not a lot going on in the Fantastic Beasts part of uh, AO3. I think that there are something like 13,000 total works in the Fantastic Beasts tag, and almost 1,800 of them are Dumbledore Grindelwald, which is not an insignificant amount, but it's sort of even with the amount that people have written about a bunch of other ships in the same universe so percival graves who is um colin farrell's character from the first movie uh slash newt's commander is about the same amount of fic tina goldstein slash newt's commander again about the same amount and then credence bare bones and percival graves has a similar amount of fic so there's kind of an an evenly spread amount going on in this fandom yeah we're not seeing uh, an explosion of Grindelwald. I wouldn't call 1,700 pieces of fan fiction an explosion of, of fan works, especially for something. I mean, Harry Potter is hugely popular. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is hugely popular, but um, it's by no means some sort of like little niche work, right? Right. Um, and in keeping with uh, the format of the podcast, uh, still found the most kudos uh, fanfic on AO3. And we realized if a goal of this podcast is to make me like fanfiction, I should probably also be reading the fanfiction along with you. Yeah, maybe we'll stumble on something you like. Probably not in this case, but you know, <laughs> it's worth a try. Yes, uh, we're, we're kind of correcting that and moving forward, I will be reading the fanfic. So could be opportunities for uh, 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 something you're actually interested in. Yeah. <laughs> but I read this but in fanfic. This case, yes. We both read this fanfic. It's a, an, again, I do think we're starting to discover that the most kudos fic is often fairly inoffensive. <laughs> like, light. I think light you're, yeah, it's light. It's often broad. It's often funny. Uh, and that's sort of the thing that seems to be most appealing. So uh, the one we have here is pretty silly. It's almost a little bit cracky. Um, it's called Relationship Counseling. And it 
the premise of it is it takes place during the first Fantastic Beasts movie, which Kelsey did not watch. But um, during the first Fantastic Beasts movie, Grindelwald is uh, Polyjuice potioning himself as Colin Farrell's character, Percival Graves. Um, and you don't find out until the end that it's been Grindelwald all along. Um, yeah. So this fic is he's holding Percival Graves hostage because he has to keep him around to keep getting, you know, new Polyjuice potion. And the entire story is him uh, complaining to Percival and like basically asking for advice about how to get Dumbledore to love him again. (laughs) Yes. Uh, What did you think of it? I mean, it definitely was cute. I I'll agree with that. Um, But like, yeah, I just, I don't really care about these characters. It's like, to be fair, I don't know that anyone really cares about these characters. You don't really get the sense from the fan fiction that this author is like so emotionally invested in what's going on with them. I think they were like, wouldn't that be a funny idea? Yeah. Um, uh, As we alluded to, probably not the tipping point for me. No. Into fan fiction. But again, I do feel like we keep adding up evidence on evidence that the most kudos fic is probably going to be something that anybody could read with no problem. So yeah, probably not the key. Um, But we also want to, as always, bring in a little uh, scholarly work. Uh, And I think we found a pretty interesting piece this time. And this one's nice. This this, um, work, it's by Leslie Goodman. It's called Disappointing Fans, Fandom Fictional Theory and the Death of the Author. And unlike some of the scholarly works, um, that we have talked about. This one's publicly available. Like you, anyone can download a PDF of it. So we'll probably post it directly. And it's a it's a pretty interesting read. Um, and I think there's a lot there for a number of future episodes to cover as well. But one thing I wanted to pull out, uh, thinking about J.K. Rowling and her uh, penchant for just saying insane things after the release of the novels both like just like i'm i want to get points representation to that thing she said about wizards not using bathrooms they just peed their pants and then whispered it away i wish that you hadn't brought that up every time i think about it i get upset right um and so in this piece uh leslie brings up what I think is like a general literary theory called fictional worlds theory, which the premise of it is if an author writes two books or more than two books that all take place within the same universe, those two texts may end up contradicting each other, right? Because people mm-hmm. make mistakes. But there must there must be a universe that exists outside those books where one thing, one of the two contradictory pieces of information is true in the universe. Right. And so it opens up this idea that kind of uh, following up with what we had that discussion about with, uh, not with Neil Gaiman, but (laughs) remember when Neil Gaiman was on the podcast last time, (laughs) Um, but about Neil Gaiman's position on fan fiction, it opens up this possibility that the text itself might not be canon if, it contradicts that existing universe. And so fans... Having a lot of philosophical issues here. Really, every week we discover that there's no such thing as canon. (laughs) Right. So fans become very involved 
as groups and then establishing what the that universe outside of the text is and resolving those contradictions. And so I was thinking about it and um, we've talked a little bit before about like the structure of TV shows in particular and how many people work on a TV show. So that's a mm-hmm. place where a lot of contradictions can very easily crop up. And my immediate thought is like, as a fan, as a viewer, you can have maybe like one of three primary responses to that. Not saying or that- Or more. If you're thinking of more, more. do tell. But yeah. the ones that came yeah, to right us. But these are the ones that came to my mind. And I think you can have multiple of these or all three of these responses as well. So the first one is, you can just kind of like shrug your shoulders and be like, man, they really messed that up and just kind of ignore it and move <laughs> that on. That doesn't make sense, but oh well. Yeah, what are we going to do? And then when you talk about with people, just go, yeah, like that episode was poorly written. I don't know what they were doing. Who they let write that script? Okay, that's one reaction. The second reaction is you can do the kind of labor that's described in this fictional worlds theory of like everyone gets together, the brain trust, and they resolve all these contradictions and they invent solutions for gaps. And probably like the more contradictory and the more open the world is the more labor you have to end up doing, right? So that's another reaction. And that's what's described in the piece. Or you can make fun of it. <laughs> you can just be yes. like, that's real dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Let's make fun of it. Which we've obviously said throughout this entire podcast that I don't read fan fiction. I'm not particularly interested in fan fiction. But there has always been a potential exception in my mind for parody. Because I do enjoy parody, even of things I like. And right. so like, is a is parody fan fiction. Um, and obviously there are fan fictions that are comedic, but mm-hmm. parody is something that attracts me. And one of the other things that I thought about in light of this is in the Jennifer Barnes piece that we brought up a couple of times of fan fiction as play, she talks about one of the appeals of fan fiction is um, that people are searching for a specific like emotional journey or an emotional um, uh feeling an emotional feeling always Um, searching for a specific emotional feeling right which is maybe also why we're seeing that like the kind of fluffy fix are so important because like people are like i just want to sit down and read something nice i want to have a nice time i want to read something nice the thing that maybe most people are going to be like i enjoyed that is something that makes you feel good but um, if you wanted to read something that like made you cry you could probably easily sort fan fiction to say like i'm gonna read something about characters i love that makes me cry and then like makes me feel hopeful or whatever yeah. and i'm i'm always looking to laugh so i'm i'm really open to parody and harry potter is a good example because there's a lot of harry potter parody there sure I really is enjoy. uh a harry potter musical is a is the top one which you introduced what me to classic from my alma mater at the university of michigan Yes. Good job, guys. (laughs) Or like Potter Puppet Pals, which was like a very early YouTube thing. Yeah, one of the earlier like viral YouTube videos I remember watching. But yeah, I just I wanted to bring that up thinking about like, when people think of fan fiction, do they think of parody? Or is that like a distinct activity? Because it's not earnestly engaging with the text usually. So I I don't know if it's like a, a different... I mean, yes and no. I don't know if you would think of it when when you ask to think of fan fiction. I don't know the first thing comes that comes to mind is parody, but in my mind, it's kind of hard to not consider it fan fiction when it's performing all of the same functions of fan fiction. Just you know, 
comedically, which obviously fan fiction can do as well. Like thinking of a very Potter musical, it's hard to not consider that fan fiction. You're you're building an entire world. It's an intense act of creation entirely formed around a, a canon created by someone else. It's it feels fan fictiony, um, just in the sense that it's uh, a musical. <laughs> <laughs> that's performed on stage instead of a thing that people read on AO3. Right. Um, and yeah, and I don't know if the, the other thing is like, as I've gotten older, I've gotten lazier about reading generally. So if it's something I can watch, mm. I'm also. More Hell yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that you Bring have Bring me my fan fiction in visual form, please. Right. I just want to laugh, man. Yeah, man. I, I understand that instinct. But yeah, I think that was an interesting discussion in this article as well. And I think you're right. It brings up this question of like, what is canon? Is anything canon? I think my conclusion by the end of this is that canon is a, a fictional concept. Canon is a lie. <laughs> canon is a lie. Because it's not canon. Or it is. Everything's canon. Nothing is canon. Canon is, it's like Schrodinger's canon. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. So from that light note, I think we should proceed into um, just generally how fandom and creators, so in this case, JK and fandom, are interacting about all of this stuff. And interestingly enough, it's kind of like one of the more emotional discourses of any that we've talked about. Yes. Uh, I think for a number of reasons, there is... As I've talked about how how connected people get to television shows, I think that there is an exception, or not an exception, a new addendum <laughs> to that, where uh, we can talk about how people get attached to these, not just book series, but like children's book series. There's something about the Harry Potter books as something that people read when they were still becoming people, forming mm-hmm. their identities, and 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 using this to to create them a sense of themselves, you know, people, maybe not you and me, but lots of people around our age and, and older and younger are emotionally tied to the Harry Potter series in a way that is tough to compete with in terms of any other series. It's people have strong, strong feelings (laughs) about the Harry Potter series and therefore strong, strong feelings about JK Rowling, who in recent years has made it Difficult to um, to maybe reconcile those feelings because of various things that she says and does. Yes. And while we are not going to touch on the full scope of what J.K. Rowling says and does, because there's a lot of ways in which her actions and comments have been hurtful. To all types of people. To a lot of people. Um, I think we do want to say, so there are a lot of, articles we found specifically about this queer baiting issue and we're not really going to go through all of them but we'll probably post them um they're saying pretty familiar and similar things to really what we've been saying all along it's just that there are lots of articles listing the various times and cases where she seems to engage in pretty explicit queer baiting through all of her various works yes and one of the things though that we did come across and so kind of I think 
similar to these Fantastic Beasts movie, um, I think we've made it relatively clear that we've disengaged a little bit from Harry Potter and we're not super in the know about kind of anything produced past the seventh part two movie. Right. Even remember it uh, very well. That one had the battle. It's the seven part one movie that I have trouble remembering when they're just walking around in the woods. So another thing we came across that is the post that was some uh, discourse around the cursed child play, which we had very little awareness of. I think it's fair to say. Yes. But we have since become aware that there was a lot of discussion about queer baiting in The Cursed Child, which, as we learned, is mostly about um, Harry's child and Draco's child, whose names are, like, real dumb. I don't remember. Albus Severus Potter and Scorpius Malfoy. (laughs) So it's the two of them (sighs) as young kids in school. And seemingly over the course of this play, if you... Uh, listen to what the fans are saying they develop a you know pretty like not explicit but pretty clear romance over the course of the play Uh, and then at the very end the way that things are tied up is a very uh, like jarring (laughs) shift to where the, the end is basically being like they're not gay. They're not in love. Each of them gets married to a woman or something. It's like the end of it, basically. <laughs> and just having this happen again on top of all of the various times she's done things like this, I think hit people negatively. Um, and we found yeah. this really it's a great, pattern. It's a pattern at this point. It's not just one thing. Um, we found this really great HuffPost piece that we'll link to by a guy um, just basically outlining the emotional journey of being a devoted Harry Potter fan and then being sort of repeatedly, you know, like victimized by JK Rowling, right? Like she keeps doing things where it feels like she's telling these fans that it's not okay for them to be who they are. And they're fans that have been huge fans of the, of the book series for their entire lives and still would, as he says, like he still will tell people he's a Gryffindor <laughs> and like, yeah. that's rough for that to be a, actually a part of your identity. And then JK Rowling keeps doing things where she'll make a play that seems like it's a love story. And then at the end, she's like, JK. <laughs> but they're straight, of course, like, come on. <laughs> there is something interesting to me about the potential of, uh, the cursed child being like a redo of Drary, right? Since it's Harry's son and Draco's son, and then they seem to fall in love at school. It's like we should have had Harry and Draco get together all along. We missed our chance. Now we can have their kids do it. Yeah, that apparently did not pan out. And I, it was interesting learning about that too, because I was under the impression that she didn't write Cursed Child, but we figured out she didn't write the script, but she wrote the story. She wrote the story. So again, yeah. She's very responsible for everything happening in in this universe. It's not this case of someone being licensed to adapt her work and doing something either similar or different. It's, it's yeah. The in general, she has sort of an unprecedented level of control over every piece of canon in her universe. Yeah, for an author of a book series, it's kind of like 
unheard of. Normally you would just license the rights and somebody else would take it over, you know? Yeah. Um, so to, to wrap all of that up, we have this quote from uh, Cecily Bowen at Refinery29 just sort of talking about why it is that everyone is upset that she does this thing over and over again where she will say out loud to everyone, this person's gay, this person's whatever. Maybe Hermione's not white. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> um, but yeah. she never shows any of that representation on screen and, and why that matters. So the quote is, complex character development over time matters, but so does representation. Giving marginalized groups the chance to see themselves and their identities represented on screen did not have to begin or end with Dumbledore. Just as there are a plethora of cultures represented in Fantastic Beasts, so too can there be more than one person who is not straight. My issues with Dumbledore aside, the crimes of Grindelwald needed a gay scene because it's the right thing to do. Yes. It does. That sort of lays it all out there. (laughs) But I think as a... As a coda, we also want to talk a little bit about, again, we've said throughout this that, like, this particular instance, like, we are frustrated by it as people not particularly attached to Harry Potter. And so it's just very difficult. (laughs) We're, like, incredibly sympathetic to people who are emotionally affected by her her actions and it's I think also interesting to think of in light of the Neil Gaiman discussion and maybe that's the path forward right Mm -hmm. is to recognize that yes she wrote these seven books that were foundational to you or informative or important but what she does after those seven books doesn't matter it's it's not canon it doesn't it shouldn't impact your reading of the text as it was because as neil would say anything she says after the fact isn't canon it's no more or less than any fan fiction you would write right the canon is what's in the books and everything else is equally irrelevant so this is you know a wonderful uh a role that fan fiction can play if the fan fiction is equally valid as whatever jk rowling says after those seven books take place stop paying attention to her and yeah. start reading the fan fiction and you know hopefully you already own the seven books so the money spent don't worry yeah, about it but you know don't feel bad about financially disengaging from her you know you don't yeah. have to go see fantastic beast three you don't have to go see the cursed child it's painful i know to just give up on her yeah. <laughs> someone who created something so meaningful to you but it, it's not any more painful than having to rationalize all of her you know, transphobic comments and stuff like it just maybe it's healthier and, and better to just move on and accept what Neil says and uh, truly buy into the death of the author. Yes, I think that's a great, <laughs> great way to conclude our discussion. But to really conclude our discussion, we have to ask our final question. Mm-hmm. Is it queer baiting, queer coding? queer canon it is somehow simultaneously i guess potentially all three but really queer canon and queer baiting and i think what's interesting to think of in light of that fictional world theory is there is a reality of whether or not dumbledore is gay and while i guess right now the texts don't 
exactly contradict each other. They're not saying necessarily 100% the same thing. But that is how a single character can be both an example of queer baiting and queer canon at the same exact time. Yeah. It's frustrating. It's fascinating. I don't know how she's accomplished this feat, but you're absolutely right. If, If we're counting things the creator says as part of the canon. And again, Neil Gaiman would say, uh-uh-uh, <laughs> that's not canon. Uh, then, then yes, they're canonically gay. Or I don't know if she's, she did say he was gay. I was going to say, I don't know if yeah. she said what they're, what they're, they personally identify as. But anyway, they were together. It was intense. It was sexual. But also at the same time, it's nowhere to be found on screen or in the book. So it is, probably the most textbook example you can possibly get of of what we originally defined queer baiting to be right because usually it's so much more complex than that textbook definition but the definition of implying characters are gay or in a same-sex relationship without the intention of showing that that same-sex relationship on screen is what is happening (laughs) yeah except she's not just implying She's straight up stating <laughs> that they are gay, but you won't see it on screen. And if there's a if there's a reason for that, other than I want gay people to pay attention to me when I say this, but I don't want straight people to be upset when they watch the movie, I would be happy to know what that explanation right. is. I want progressive points, but I, I don't want any ramifications from moviegoers. So yeah, like generally... We get into our next question, which is if you gender swap them, would be they be a couple? They're already a couple. That's canon. It's, it's they are canon. a couple. So who cares <laughs> if you gender swap them? They wouldn't be a couple because the they're the gay. fact that they're gay is what made Dumbledore evil in J.K.'s mind. <laughs> oh God. Uh, so why isn't it canon? It is, but also J.K. Rowling sucks. <laughs> yep. Hypothesis: J.K.'s a really bad person, and uh, now everybody knows it. Uh, and how do we feel about this queer baiting on a scale of one to five? Once again, one being, I don't know what these fans are talking about. These two characters are never in the same room. And five uh-huh. being unrepentant, malicious queer baiting. Where do it's you a five, Maddie. Maybe? It's our first five. <laughs> yeah, we did it. <laughs> but also, oh no, we did it. Oh no, we did it. <sighs> so... After that joyous time, I'll ask my, I'll get back to asking my question of, uh, you want to read fan fiction now? <laughs> Did this no, make you want to read Especially not right now. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I need to go watch something nice. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe, uh, maybe what's a good movie to watch now? Maybe In-N-Out? <laughs> oh, In-N-Out would make you feel so good. Yeah. Uh, you know what is not fluffy? But hopefully you will still like uh-huh. what we're going to be talking about next time. Oh, what's that? It is Hannibal. So the uh, ship being Hannibal and Will Graham from the NBC series Hannibal. <laughs> now, this is going to be interesting for us because up until this point, we've basically seen or are familiar with sort of the same amount of the fiction we're covering. And uh, for this one, you have watched all of Hannibal and I multiple times none of Hannibal 
But Maddie's going to give Well, you've watched none of Hannibal right now. Yes. But when we talk about it, you will have seen some perfectly curated amount of episodes that I will provide to you, hopefully with plenty of time for you to watch all of them. Yes, to get a get a sense of uh, of their relationship, but it'll be interesting to see how we we work through that episode as well. With me, it's going to be an experiment. All the details. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, it should be it should be more fun than this one. Less like, oh god, I think it will wrong? be less infuriating than this one. I that I give you my guarantee that you will not be as mad leaving that episode. All right, awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So what if people want to get in touch with us? I hope they do. And they should email us at ltbkpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Tumblr at ltbkpod. We hope you've been enjoying the podcast. And if so, it would be great if you could give us a rating or review on iTunes or any other app. New episodes of Let the Boys Kiss are released every other Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 